parts of your word, for the beauty of your word as a whole. We thank you for the different means and the different types of literature that we find within your word itself and how they speak to us in different ways. And so, as the psalmist considers his own soul today, we would consider ours before you. We pray that you would help us in so doing. We pray that you would guide us in so doing. You who have searched us, you who have known us, guide us today and help us to search our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you cannot say that I did not warn you. Last week, I said to us that if we're going to take a journey into the soul, it is going to be uncomfortable. We are not accustomed to doing this kind of thing. The soul is full of imprecise, confusing, jumbled up emotions and feelings and desires. It's a jambalaya inside of our souls. I quoted from Calvin last week, and let me do so again this week, a different quote, but again, Calvin, reflecting on the Psalms, says this, there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here, that is in the Psalms, that is not here represented as in a mirror, or rather the Holy Spirit has drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the mind of men are wont to be agitated. And certainly, when you jump into Psalm 42, Psalm 43, we have jumped into the deep end of the pool of disturbing emotions, and it is indeed agitating. Now, Calvin didn't quite use those words in the same way that we use those words. His, rather, is talking about the disturbance that exists within the soul rather than an irritant, per se. But nevertheless, these words, this, this idea of emotions being distracting and agitating can sometimes characterize us. We, we perhaps think this, yes, that's true, if I could only get over these distracting and these agitating emotions, then I could really serve God. Then I could be steadfast, I could be immovable, I could be implacable, resolute, faithful, as I seek to serve God. We can think that way. But that is most emphatically not the way of the Psalms. Instead, the ancient paths of the Psalms lead us right into the dizzying complexity of the soul, into the turbulence of our emotional lives. They might not leave us at that particular place, but they take us there. And they want us to spend a lot of time considering exactly those things. Now today, as we look at these, these psalms or this psalm together, I'm going to look at various aspects of this psalm, but I'm going to look at it at a little bit of a, you know, what's called the 30,000 foot level. 
I'm going to look at the macro perspective on this particular psalm, and what I want to look at is the process by which the psalmist searches his soul. I want to articulate that for us. He's doing in a particular scenario, we can apply the process across the board. So today we're going to look at the soul extracted, the soul identified and questioned, and then the soul instructed. We begin then with what is probably the most striking feature of this psalm. It is the one that you read as part of the course each time uh, that we looked at that, the three times that are contained in the two psalms itself. And that is to say, this idea that I've, that I've called the idea of the soul extracted. The chorus is a conversation, a conversation that exists between the self and the soul. That's the way I'm going to refer to it today. There are probably other things you could use instead of self there, but that's what I'm going to call it, a conversation between the self and the soul. It is as if one is sitting around a fire, campfire, by yourself, and you realize that you're unsettled, you're disturbed, you're perturbed. And the self says to the soul, we need to talk. And so extracted out of the self is the soul who sits on another log at the fire, and the soul and the self begin a dialogue with one another. I know that is odd. <laughs> it's the structure of the psalm. But for a moment, let's work through that. Let's, let's work with this idea that is presented to us here, this picture that takes place. That said, the self and the soul are not talking alone. They are consciously talking within the presence of God and to God himself. Now, that's a little bit odd. It's a little bit odd because one of the problems that the psalmist has in this psalm is that he is, he is exiled. He cannot get into the presence of God. He longs to be back in Zion. He longs to be in the place where all of the sacrifices take place and all of the people gather together for worship. He longs to be in the dwelling place of God. And yet, as he is here, sitting around our hypothetical campfire, talking to his soul, he also recognizes that God's presence is there as well, and so he will talk to God, and he will talk to his soul in the presence of God. God, whom he calls the living God, my God, the God of my life, my salvation, my refuge, my exceeding joy. So, the soul and the self are talking to one another, and they are talking to God as well, and it is an uncomfortable, difficult conversation. The self has concerns about the state of the soul. And while the soul and the self are desirous of trusting in God, they're confused by God. On the one hand, they trust God, right? And you can see that in the psalm as it is laid out for us. They trust God, his goodness, his faithfulness that have been in the past. 
They trust the promises of God's steadfast love. They even trust the eventual victory of God, the reign of God. So they are struggling before this God whom they want to trust. On the other hand, the soul and the self are confused by the present circumstances, which in fact find them to be exiled from God. They're being taunted by enemies, mourning and being oppressed instead of drinking of the sweet waters or springs that flow from the temple of God, from the courts of God. The self and the soul are feeding, they're drinking tears instead of that. And they wonder, God, why have you forgotten me? Verse 9, why have you forgotten me? And then it gets worse as we go into verse 43. And the question goes from why have you forgotten me to why, verse 2, have you rejected me? So the, exalt, the extracted soul and the self are struggling before God. Next then, the soul is identified and questioned. Uh, recall for a moment the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was exiled, and you remember the story that Nehemiah in his exile gets a report from people who have been to Jerusalem and have come back and they give him the report about the state of things in Jerusalem, and it's not good. Amongst other things, the wall is torn down, and the people are living in shame in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, when he hears about this, was sad before Artaxerxes the king. Artaxerxes the king notices this, and he says to Nehemiah, why is your face sad? You're not sick. In other words, I can see that there's no exterior reason for you to be sad right now. Therefore, this is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah explains. Nehemiah goes on to explain how an external thing, that is to say the state of things in Jerusalem, has caused for him an internal pain. His soul, to use the words of our psalm, his soul is downcast. His countenance has externally manifested the fact that his heart and soul are downcast. And, of course, in that section in Nehemiah, you have two men talking with one another. In our psalm, we have a very similar thing going on, except that you have the self talking to the soul in a very similar way. They're in dialogue with one another, and the self notices the expression, the countenance on the face of the soul, and the fact that the soul is crying. The self, like King Artaxerxes, properly identifies and names the condition of the soul. You are cast down. Verse 6, 42. My soul is cast down within me, saddened, depressed, discouraged. Might be other words that we would use as synonyms for a cast down soul. 
Note for a moment this simple truth, critical to this thing that we're describing as soul-searching today, is the ability to identify our emotions, to have a vocabulary that allows us to say, this is what is taking place in my soul. This, in particular, is what I am feeling. We have the ability to identify it and to describe what that is. Psychologists today call that your EQ, your emotional quotient, your ability to know what is going on inside of you. Now note, the soul makes no effort to deny what's going on. The soul doesn't say, oh, it's all right, I'm fine, everything is okay, I got no problems over here, I'm just sitting around the fire with you, don't worry about that expression on my face. Instead, besides just identifying it as downcast, similes and metaphors are used to help us to see what exactly this feels like for the soul right now. So what does it feel like for the soul? Well, it feels like a deer like a deer who has been running and running and has no drink, and is panting, and is thirsty. What does the soul feel like right now? The soul feels like somebody who has, perhaps you've been out in the ocean, you've been right on the edge, you've been caught, and the waves are tumbling you around, and you feel like you can't catch a breath, and you feel like you're right on the edge, or perhaps you've been whitewater rafting, you fell out, you got stuck in a rapid, and you know you're right on the edge. That's what the soul describes itself as, not only in the name being downcast, but these are the similes, the metaphors that help us to understand what this feels like. The soul does not deny that it is cast down, and it doesn't ignore it either. There's wreckage, there's carnage around the soul, and the soul doesn't say, don't worry about me, Nothing happening here. God is faithful. Move along. Nothing to see here. Instead, the soul invites the self to look on and to see what is taking place. The soul of the psalmist then accepts the extraction, receives the identification, you are downcast, and invites the question that the self lovingly asks of it three times. Why? Why? Why are you downcast and in turmoil, O my soul? We looked at Psalm 51 last week. If we ask that question of Psalm 51, it gets answered even before it is asked in Psalm 51. The occasion for David's prayer in Psalm 51 is his own sin. We can label it. We know exactly what it was. David could label it, know exactly what it was. That's what was the problem with his soul. In this psalm, we don't know. We don't have a clear answer except for the oppression and the exile. We don't know why and what is causing it. But in these questions... The self and the soul are acknowledging the struggle of faith. And they're acknowledging the struggle of faith 
from within faith. It is the very faith that is the problem. Does that make sense? This is not a problem if you don't have faith. It is a problem, circumstantially, if you do have faith. It's very simple. God is good. Circumstances are hard. What's going on? That's it. God's good. Circumstances are hard. What's going on? I don't understand what is happening here. Another note here for a moment, then, about ourselves. Can we acknowledge this, that we as people, especially we who are Reformed, oftentimes would like to have the answer without the process, the resolution without the struggle. We would like to be able to say, psalmist, don't you know God is sovereign? This is all part of his plan, part of his will. Perhaps you know the reason, Psalm 51. Perhaps you don't know the reason. Doesn't matter. This is all part of his plan, part of his will. He's sovereign. Trust him, period. And when we do that, we christen that. I name thee faith. We call that kind of attitude faithful. And we have doubts about people who struggle. We wonder, are, hmm, are they really Christians? Do they really know the promises of God? If they really knew the promises of God, why go through this tumult of your soul? Be careful. Be very careful with it. The Psalms and our Lord openly acknowledge troubled souls. Troubled by circumstances, past, present, and pending. If you think that is sub-faith, you've got some thinking to do. You've got some struggling with the Bible, with the Psalms, with your soul to do. The soul is extracted. The soul is identified and questioned, and then the soul is instructed. And here's the instruction that comes in this psalm. It is threefold as well. Hope in God. Hope in God in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmists struggle deeply with their emotions. They struggle deeply, especially with their negative emotions. But they are not content to stay there. Tremper Longman, one who writes on the Psalms quite a bit, is helpful at this point. He notes that the psalmists don't merely succumb to emotions as things that are uncontrollable. They just exist and there's nothing I can do about them. Instead, the psalmist wants to take the time to identify it, 
to question it, and then to instruct it, to train the soul regarding that particular emotion, to move from the negative to the positive, to move from being downcast or cast down to being hopeful. Now, sometimes as we read the Psalms, it can seem to us, because we're reading a compressed piece of poetry, a song, that the turn, the transition, took place on a dime. Like you're reading through a lament, and all of a sudden, the next verse, the psalmist says, but I turned and hoped in God, and He restored my hope. But the Psalms compressed time. For the sake of the, the literary device, they compress time. These are struggles that you're not supposed to necessarily turn on a dime, but rather see the process of what is going on here and engage and enter into that process, be it a day, be it an hour, be it weeks, be it years of struggling through something. Let me, let me also say one other thing about that. Nothing in Scripture and nothing in the Psalms presents this type of struggle as a one-time thing that exists in the life of a person. So, in other words, you go through Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 when you're 25, and then you never have to struggle with that again. You're all done with Psalm 42, 43. You move on to other things. Instead, the sea billows keep coming in. The waves keep crashing again, and you've got to go through that cycle again where you're learning to depend more and more upon the Lord, where you're moving from being a troubled soul to a trusting soul. Consider the final words of Jesus, a troubled Savior, experiencing on the cross and up to the cross the anguish of His soul. Now is my soul troubled. Jesus understands the state of His soul and acknowledges publicly the state of His soul. It's troubled. And the last words that He utters our Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. From troubled to trust through the cross. This week, what I want to encourage us to do is to practice the habit of soul searching. The soul is mysterious. It is complex. And therefore, as you practice this habit this week, look at the verse on the front of your bulletin. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. That which is mysterious to you is not to God regarding your soul. Search me, because you've done it, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Start there with the searching of your soul. And then say to your soul, extract your soul in other words, say to your soul, extract it, sit it right there, soul, what are you doing right now? What are you feeling right now? What are you thinking right now? Now, I know this sounds odd, believe me. As I wrote it, I thought this sounds nuts. You're angry, you're discouraged, you're depressed, 
you've lashed out, you find yourself just keeping looking at things on the computer, something in you is gnawing at you, stop. Soul, what are you doing? What is happening right now? What are you feeling? Take time to identify it. Is it anxiety? Is it doubt? Is it fear? Is it frustration? Whatever it is, decide what it is and put a name on it. Say, this is what it is. My soul is cast down. Now that's Psalm 42, 43. What is your soul? Identify it. If you are not used to this, it's a strange process for Reformed folk to talk about. When you listen to birds, if you don't know anything about birds, it just sounds like a cacophony. I don't know a lot about bird calls, but I know a few. And when you start to learn the different voices of the birds, it doesn't sound like a cacophony anymore because you can pick out. Ah, that's that bird, that's that bird, that's a cat bird, that's a hawk, that's a red-headed woodpecker. And they become familiar sounds to you because you learn what they are. You need to learn to be able to name what is going on inside of you. And then here's another step. Give it a simile. Give it a metaphor. Describe it. Are you frustrated? Lord, I feel like I'm chasing after the wind. Feel like I'm trying to clean up leaves off the lawn and boy, the next windstorm brings a whole nother set of leaves up on the lawn. Feel like a hamster in a wheel. You feeling lonely? I feel like a person at sea lost on a raft. Feeling sinful? I feel like a stray dog who just walked into the Westminster Dog Show. How oft times, really, do you deliberately take time to label what is going on inside of you, to come up with a simile that describes it? If that sounds odd to you, why? That's exactly what the psalmists do. That's exactly the way they search out their soul and explore what is going on inside of them. Then you've got another step. Having identified it, you need to ask your soul this question, why? Why are you downcast? Why are you frustrated? Why are you angry? What has happened? What are the circumstances that have caused this? What are the patterns that exist in your life that cause you to react in a particular way? What are the things that have happened in your past, in your family, in your upbringing, that cause you to respond to a person, to a situation, with the kind of feelings, the kind of emotions that you are experiencing right now? Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you thinking and feeling the way you are right now? And when you have done that, you will have succeeded in at least identifying jambalaya inside of your soul. It'll be a mess. It will not be pretty. And then you take that to the Lord, and you say, God, help me to hope in you. Help me to hope in you. Help me to hope in Jesus, Jesus who took on body and soul, Jesus who suffered body and soul 
to redeem you, body and soul. So this is your call this week, to be a soul searcher, to be a psalmist, to do the work of a psalmist in your own life. Practice soul searching.